here it's squeezer and we are joined by author blake j harris say hello blake hey how's it going guys good good we're uh super excited to have you on um i first i knew your book was coming for a while i, I believe i first heard about it on engadget it's, it's a site i check daily and um i knew it was coming for a while and I remember I got the update. It was one of the first, it was probably the second or third book I read on Apple books platform on my <laughs> iPad. Uh, I read Steve. I had to read Steve jobs, the book, Steve jobs first by Walter Isaac. Uh, I knew I couldn't read that any, on any other format. And then, um, I, I think I read Kevin Smith's book, tough shit. And then I was, I was looking for something else and uh, Blake, your book came out and I was, I, I read it so quick. It was such a great enthralling, uh, read. I couldn't believe how exciting you made, you know, a bunch of like, I'm saying this, I could say this cause we're dorks too, but how much, how you made a bunch of nerds and dorks seem so darn interesting. Well, I really appreciate that. I have to say that that was absolutely the goal. I wanted it to be as accessible as possible. I've, I've talked in the past about how, when I write, I try to write with my grandma in mind, like how can I make these dorks or marketing guys <laughs> seem interesting to her. But, uh, but I have to say like one thing I, have really appreciated about how the book has resonated is that even the people that seem to hate the book and there's a there's a percentage of people not a big percent but even they are usually like i read this book over the weekend you know it was a quick read and i hated it like, right, <laughs> as long as it was a quick read and that you got through it that's awesome <laughs> right yeah there's it it's you you get it like it captures you right uh, as soon as uh, uh kalinsky's on the hawaiian beaches and he gets approached by a mysterious man, you're hooked immediately. Yeah, good, um, good, good. So uh, a few questions, uh, and I've had these questions for, it's almost been four years since I read. I first read, I reread it again in preparation for this, but uh, I think it was May of four, 2014 I first read it. Um, and uh, I just wanted to know, like, how, how accessible were all these guys when you were writing this book? Um... That's a, that's a great question, and uh, it, it really varied. I think that you know, a lot of it uh, was a result of the type of story I wanted to tell, which was very character driven and accessible. So, so to me, it was important to have really open lines of communication. You know, like it wasn't like I had my interview and I was able to run with that. Uh, and then, um, so so that was why it was very important to me to have it. Uh, and and then from the other side is the fact that. You'll notice that on the book it doesn't list any other credits of writing that I have, uh, so it was hard at, at first to get relationships with these people. Um, but by the you know I guess the book came out like you said three and a half four years ago, um, and I spent three years working on it. So it ended up even though I'm a, you know I'm an impatient person, I always wanted to be done. It ended up being a great thing that it took me three years to write it, um, and I would say that. After about six months or about a year into my three-year process, uh, I was on very, very good terms with uh, the, with many of the main characters, especially Tom Kalinske and Al Nilsson, uh, Ellen Beth Van Busker, Diane Fornasier, um, and some people at Nintendo too, uh, Gail Tilden and uh, Howard Phillips and Tony Harmon. So, uh, you know, I, I guess the answer to your question 
that I've provided in a long winded fashion <laughs> is that uh, these people became very accessible. So, you know, as any journalist can attest, you know, it's usually hard at first, but uh, but they were very accessible. And I don't think I could have written the book or at least written it in a way that I felt like uh, like like good about if I didn't have their participation, because the style of the book, which is, uh, you know, more like a novel where you're really inside the room right, and inside right. the minds with these people, uh, I, I, you know, to not have their participation would have felt kind of presumptuous on my part to, uh, you know, have, have dialogue with them and not go through it with them. So it was super important that they were accessible. Unfortunately, most of them were able to do so. Prior to writing the book, you, you had to have a rough idea that there was a story to tell. Mm-hmm. At, at some point in, in your research and gr- creating these relationships, did something click like you knew, like this is it, or this is kind of the path that we're going to go down? Yeah, that's a really good question too. Um, it actually did. And you know, I've been a writer now, obviously not a successful one before this, for, I don't know, 10, 12 years. And rarely do I find that you actually have like that eureka moment of things clicking into place. Usually it's much more gradual. But with this book, it was sort of an instantaneous moment where uh, I felt with certainty that there was a great story here and that I wanted to devote years to telling it. And so so the process for me, a little bit of background, was that I became uh, curious about what had happened with Sega and Nintendo in the early 90s just as a, as a person, not as a writer. Uh, and so actually initially as a reader at first, I just wanted to read a book about uh, behind the scenes Sega and Nintendo or video game industry, was surprised by how little – was out there, um, but but still, even at that point, it wasn't like I thought, oh, I'm going to fill this demand that I perceive. Uh, so so the moment, so I started reaching out to people to kind of see if there was a story there, and I, in a way, almost presumed there wasn't because there was no book. I assumed that, like, how could there not be this book? Sega Nintendo was such a big cultural part of a lot of people's experiences and obviously historically had a big impact on the video game industry. So if there wasn't a book and there weren't there weren't many articles online about Tom Kalinske and Al Milson and these different campaigns and Sonic vs. Mario from a business standpoint. So I, I kind of assumed that there was not that much there. And I started reaching out to people and seeing that there was a little bit of a good human story there. And then, like, really the answer to your question is that things crystallized and clicked into place for me when I first spoke with Tom Kalinske. Our first call, or, you know, for listeners who don't know, Tom Kalinske was the CEO of Sega of America from 1990 to 96, when the company went from 5% of the market up to 55 or 60% of the market and then started to go back down again. Um, and, and partly what hooked me with him, uh, before we even got to this that great Hawaiian example, uh, uh, you know, his Hawaiian anecdote, was that for the first hour of our two-hour call, uh, we were talking about things before Sega, and I realized that even before we got to Sonic and Joe Montana football and all that, like this guy, other than my parents, is probably the adult most responsible for my childhood between helping create the Flintstones kids' chewable vitamins, uh, He-Man Masters of the Universe, resurrecting the Barbie line, and basically just all the things that he had done in the toy industry beforehand. Um, So at least I knew that there was a character with uh, a lot of substance and weight there and also someone who uh, you know going he's obviously the protagonist and the main character of the story and I, I, I tried to play devil's advocate the whole time uh, when I write, wrote I wrote about him or when I write about any character to say like 
do they deserve this credit? Are they kind of just like, you know, lucky and, you know, being in the right place at the right time, which, which happens a lot. And luck, of course, plays a factor. But the fact that Tom had been so successful in the past made me feel good about everything that I was hearing from him and from his former employees that he really was kind of this, uh, this, this, you know, he had this King Midas touch with stories and knew how to bring things to life culturally and pop culturally. So it was during that call with Tom when I, you know, remember getting off the call and thinking like, oh my God, this is an incredible story. I'm so excited about this. I, I really hope that I get to tell it and, and tell it well. That's, that was the question I was just going to ask, like, how did, because like, when reading this, I'm like, well, Tom Kalinske and the Sega story, Tom, the Sega story is the main story and Tom is the main character in the book, it seems, to, it seemed to me. And I, it was, it was great that way. I, I, I was enthralled by it. And then I did more research on Kalinske. He made He-Man's Hair Blonde. He, that was his big contribution, <laughs> which was huge. And uh, my girlfriend w- collected for years those holiday edition Barbies. Mm-hmm. I think they still put those out. And I believe he was responsible for those also. Um, I believe that's correct. But yeah, I mean, like um, the kind of story I wanted to tell, like I said at the top, was one that was super accessible uh, where it was, you know, obviously it's a 500 page book about the video game industry. But I wanted it to almost be incidentally about the video game industry where it's a story of a guy. and It's really the story of a group of people trying to to pull something off. And Tom was a great um, anchor for that story. And then also which kind of gets back to your earlier question about accessibility. Uh, unsurprisingly, speaking to Nintendo employees, especially current Nintendo employees, was difficult. You know, they have a reputation for that. And so, uh, you know, in, in my mind, before I even spoke with Tom and I started to imagine, like, what a book would look like, I figured it would be, like, equal parts Sega Nintendo. And I even remember at one time thinking, like, one chapter Sega, one chapter Nintendo, back and forth. Um, but sort of as a byproduct of the fact that they were difficult, more difficult to access. And then also the fact that I felt like the Sega story was the underdog story and, and the more interesting story from that era, it did become more of the Sega story. Um, and, and Tom and his crew were, you know, great, great, great uh, entry points into that world. Yeah, it's one of those things where, like, for me, since we've been doing this podcast, like, all the research and that I put into it, there, there's a short list of names that you see just repeated over and over again. Uh, and, and Tom's is one of those, like, that had absolute, like you said, probably one of the most important adults in our childhood, and at the time, didn't even know it. Right. And you kind of answered my, my question. My next question was going to be, were there any anyone in particular that was maybe difficult, in, uh, especially with if there were any barriers as far as um, with like Sega of Japan, were there sure. any, any with the, that Japanese culture? And there's even, uh, I would say, uh, conflict between Sega of America and Sega of Japan. Well, that was yeah. a big part that of the book. That was a big yeah. part. But that, was there any of that in, in the research process any that you can feel? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so... Um, you know, going into <clears throat> writing this book, which was going to be an epic story about the battle between Sega and Nintendo, I did, uh, like I assume most readers and most kids who grew up during that time, assume that the main conflict in the book was going to be between Sega and Nintendo. But like you were just saying, really the biggest conflict, or at least the one that led to the fate of Sega, was sort of this more of a civil war between Sega of America and Sega of Japan. And um, I think that for that reason, though I might you know, I'm, I'm presuming here because it was never explicitly said to me, but for that reason, uh, Sega of Japan people were much more difficult to get in touch with. Um, 
and 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 that was you know a little bit difficult because you know a little bit difficult for me as a writer it weighed on me a little bit because uh a lot of what you know a lot of the story is basically the fact that sake of america was successful and sake of japan wasn't and that there was some form of jealousy or at least you know sake of japan wanting to uh have a different dynamic and that led to sort of the demise here so if i'm hearing that mostly from sake of america people uh you know i want to make sure that that is not just the more sympathetic to them version. And unfortunately, a few things happened that at least gave me insight into the sake of Japan perspective and made me feel good about uh, about what I was hearing. The, the first uh, was that I was hired by Sega of America, unrelated to this book project, except for the fact that you know, because of the book project is how I got in touch with them. But, but, you know, unrelated to anything in the book, they, I was hired by Sega of America to go to Sega of Japan and shoot 10 short documentaries with my film uh, making partner, Jonah Tulis. And of course, you know, it's been, it had been 15 or 20 years since the events in the story take place. So it's not totally fair to say that what I experienced myself is uh, representative of what Tom and the others went through. But I did feel a very big uh, corporate divide between Sake of America and Sake of Japan. Uh, I, I got the sense that Sake of Japan was doing everything in their power to make us not successful. Uh, like there was no reason like I to me it was like, well, yeah, Sake of America is making these short documentaries about games that Sega of Japan created, it seems like a win-win for everybody, but uh, but they did things like, you know, just in terms of, it takes like an hour to set up, sh- you know, the lights and the cameras and everything, and they would have us switch rooms after every interview instead of just having the people come into the same room so that we can keep the same setup, uh, and little things like that, and also, uh, like, I, you know, going, <laughs> going into the interviews, I wanted to I, we were traveling to Japan. I wanted to know, like, hey, how much time am I going to have with these people? Uh, and what kinds of questions am I allowed to ask or not allowed to ask? And, uh, you know, they never provided answers to that, uh, which seems like I don't know why you would do that. So anyway, uh, you know, that that was a small tip of the iceberg experience. But at least it made me feel like I could emotionally understand where these people at Sake of America are coming from. And then, of course, you know, you see, like, the statistical data that, the Genesis or Mega Drive, as it was called there, just was not successful in Japan. So, um, you know, it's not just some sort of arrogance on the part of Sega of America to say we were successful when they were not. And then, incidentally, while I was in Japan for filming those short documentaries, I got an email from Hayao Nakayama, who was the head of Sega during the time of the story, and uh, he invited me to his house for tea one afternoon, and uh, that was a really interesting experience. So. That at least gave me uh, insight into the biggest character from Sega of Japan during that time. And uh, so, you know, the Sega of Japan side was definitely hard for me to research and cover. Uh, I tried my best and also tried to make it clear, I would say, that that the focus of this book is the battle in America between Sega, uh, between Sega of America and Nintendo of America for the most part. Um, and then on the Nintendo side, people were very difficult as well. Um, that those that those that trajectory though ended up in a much more positive way. You know, I, I was able to get what I wanted in the end, and I think that what worked for the best for you know, I think Nintendo's happy that they uh, were open to having a discussion with me, and that they did allow me to interview some of their employees. The most important one was Howard Lincoln. You know, he was uh, 
uh, the number two at Nintendo of America in the 80s and then eventually was promoted to the number one position. And he had such a, a great friendship and partnership with Minoru Arakawa, who was the number one at Nintendo of America and also the son-in-law of the the, not the founder of Nintendo, but the descendant of the founders of Nintendo and the CEO of Nintendo Limited. So, uh, you know, having Howard's point of view was, was, you know, Howard was like the great white whale of, you know, that I was trying to get right. into the book. Right. And uh, and eventually I was able to do so. And we were able to interview him, too, for the documentary. And it was it was really great. He invited us to the owner's box at the Seattle Mariners, where he was the CEO of the Mariners at the time uh, and gave us a whole day of interviews. And uh, and that, you know, those were like, in my mind, the kinds of things that if I didn't have that, I really would have worried about what this book was. So I'm glad it worked out in the end. Um, And like I said, I think obviously Sega is the protagonist in this book, uh, but I don't think Nintendo is the bad guy per se, or at least I would hope that by the end of the book, readers understand where Nintendo is coming from and why they think that they're the good guys. And um, had I not been given those insights to speak with, um, you know, people like Howard or Don James or some of the others, I don't know that I would have been able to accurately portray that. Uh, well, just a side note, Squeezer and I both work in television, so we understand that if you had to move from room to room for interview, oh, uh, yeah. you just might Good. rip someone's head off. Uh, I don't even like changing a light. Um, right, <laughs> you let and, like, me so use you know, and it's the kind of thing where, you know, they could just be like, well, what's the big deal? You're moving a room. And I feel like that's a really passive aggressive way of saying sure, like, I mean, that absolutely. takes you like an yeah. hour and a half and that, you know, like it's just such an unnecessary thing. Yeah, they knew know? what they were doing. Yes, yeah. exactly. So in my, my mind, I'd be shocked if they didn't know what they were doing. It's yes. it's funny. Uh, we talk about like the bad guy, good guy, in this in this story. But there's a third party that that was was basically a monster created by both Nintendo <laughs> and Sega yeah. of Japan, which is Sony, who rebuffed was re, uh, Sony both Nintendo and Sony. Of, I'm sorry, Sega of Japan rebuffed Sony, which caused them to become the juggernaut that they kind of are today, and with right. the PlayStation. And um, I mean, what, I speculate just what kind of world we live in if either Nintendo or Sega of America uh, partnered with Sony on the PlayStation. Yeah, in, yeah, in 1991 at the summer CES, Nintendo very publicly uh, spurned Sony in a way that you know they could have done it not so publicly. So, so it wasn't just the fact that they right. Uh, the Olaf was in the room, right? When they are on yeah. stage when they did it, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Olaf Olafsson, who's the head of uh, Sony Publishing Entertainment, was in the room when they said that they were not going – when they announced they were partnering with someone else who wasn't Sony a day after Olaf had given a speech that said we're partnering with Nintendo. <laughs> and then a couple years later, Sega and Sony, who did for a while have a good relationship, were thinking about doing hardware and that ended up – you know, uh, Sega of Japan didn't want to move forward with that. So that kind of killed that relationship. And yeah, to your point, out of the wreckage of those two uh, – uh, unfortunate circumstances for Sony, uh, they ended up launching a console that was more successful than both of the both Nintendo and Sega. Um, and that too was a really big turning point for me as a writer. When I when I finally interviewed Olaf, uh, hearing his perspective on all of this uh, helped really helped me reframe what the story was in my mind. In the sense that he so so before Sony 
got into hardware and before Olaf was part of the team that helped, uh, you know, build or, you know, lead to the business of Sony PlayStation, like the hardware business at Sony, uh, you know, Sony was a third party publisher, no different than say like electronic arts or acclaim or, or, you know, Konami or something like that. So, so their point of view in the story was just that of a company that wanted to make games for Nintendo. And, and I distinctly recall when I met with Olaf, he said, I asked him what it was like, and he said that working with Nintendo was like being slaves on a plantation. And I thought that, like, wow, that's a that's a really crazy, <laughs> dramatic thing to right, say. Right, that was in the book, right? Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. I would never like embellish know, that, right? Myself, right? Um, and and it also like the fact that that. That, like you said, you know, it wasn't just two companies taking Nintendo. There was three companies, and we can extrapolate and assume that there's lots of different companies that have different perspectives on all the events in the story. And that's when I kind of realized that the story was Game of Thrones. That it was like <laughs> it you is. Know, the same events told from different <laughs> perspectives, um, and everybody involved thinks that they're the hero and that they deserve to be like the king. Um, and that's. Good because that's kind of that's what real life is like. Nobody, right, sure. you know, really is someone like I'm the bad guy here. I'm going to do this bad thing. Everyone thinks that they're the hero, right? Um, and so just bringing that into the story uh, and making sure that I showed why everyone thought that they were right, or and, and, and you know, doing that not just to show like oh these people think they were right, but to show why they made the decisions that they made. Um, you know, it was a big turning point meeting with Olaf and really seeing the story in a different way. Sure. N- Nintendo was the Targaryens, Sega was the Lannisters, and then Sony was the White Walkers that came <laughs> in and just murdered everybody. Well, I mean, we don't know how it ends. I'm sure it's going to happen. <laughs> so, That's, yeah. Well, I, yeah, yeah. I, I, think. Just have you ever. Sega, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Go on. We'll, we're continuing no, with I, the. I think Sega might be the Starks because the whole point is that, like, they're just by birthright, like, outsiders. And no matter how okay. good they are, even if they have moral character, like Sean Bean or whatever, like, they're still just like, oh, you're these guys from the North. You don't really matter. But, but anyway. A little brash, too. Yeah, they are. They were brash. Yeah. They're the, the. What was it? The. Uh, uh, humans against Genesis, the high group, the, that yes. commercial. That was very, <laughs> right. and Nintendo, the, which yeah. wasn't Kalinsky, but still. Right. Um, so uh, just a side note, this is a, a book I always shoehorn into these podcasts just because when I read it, I was go. blown away of how much it's connected to everything we grew up with. There's a book called Hit and Run. It's about these two guys, uh, John Peters and Peter Gruber, who when Sony bought Columbia uh, and TriStar Pictures were put in charge of it. And they basically, you know, took them for a ride. Um, but that was part of the whole uh, uh, reason Nintendo turned down Sony because Sony was coming to them as a hardware, like, you know, we make this VCR, you know, you guys do the rest, make the video games. And, and, and all the while Sony now owns uh, Columbia Records, CBS Records and Columbia TriStar Pictures. So they are now currently in the software company. And I think right. that that's kind of what spurned Nintendo and when I was reading that, rereading that in your book, I'm like, oh, you know what? This I could figure out a way to shoehorn. This, this all ties in, the hit and run. I'm going to start stealing your mail and just looking for those checks. That yeah, he assumes I get royalty checks because I mentioned this. <laughs> but if, if you ever get a chance to read a hit and run, it's a good book. It's These guys, I don't know how he was a hairdresser, but he produced the 89 Batman movie. So, I wow, mean, that sounds totally up my alley. If, if yeah, it, I mean, like, I think that also just kind of gets at what was so... Uh, cool and important and fun for me as a writer to write about with the story that, you know, obviously the video games was the big 
uh, you know, is what the story is about on the on the surface. But there's so much pop cultural stuff and different industries that intersect. You know, a big buzzword from that time that's mentioned in the book is multimedia. And though it didn't necessarily manifest in the way that people thought at the time with like CD-ROMs, you know, there was this big convergence of music, whether it's in video games or in movies and then movies um, and, and, you know, the early days of the internet, all this stuff really coming together. So it, it was a fascinating, uh, you know, convergence and uh, also job for me as a writer to, to, to kind of get it all in there and not get too sidetracked, but, but still kind of, you know, lay the groundwork for all these other things going on. So uh, another great part of the book I liked uh, was when uh, Kalinske was talking about all those those network stars and that that um, uh, Sega. It was almost like it seemed like an American Gladiators type thing where they had like, oh, yeah, Screech. Yeah, like the Sega All Stars type. Yeah, thing. Sega All Stars. Now, th- have you ever seen this this show? I've never. I I no, don't remember it, and I never seen it. And I want to. I got to search YouTube or find this. I would I love think to I watch it. it to you. I, it was on YouTube. That oh, I, was? I watched it before I wrote it. If you send it, I'll post it on our websites for everyone okay. to watch. This seems like, I guess they got network stars at the time. There's members from Saved by the Bell. I believe uh, Carlton might be involved or something, but <laughs> there's a lot of uh, early 90s uh, television stars that got together and competed with, with a, a, a Sonic mascot in costume hanging out basically in every shot. Uh, to promote the upcoming, I guess, uh, the summer of Sonic, uh, the summer of Sega, 100, 102 days of uh, Sega, I believe it was, right? Yeah, and that was like perfectly in line with Sega's strategy at the time. You know, one of the things that attracted me to the story was that it was like a Moneyball type story of a company with much more limited resources competing with a juggernaut and Sega's answer to not, you know, not being able to do stuff with like battle the network stars was to find cheaper labor yeah, in, right. in, you know, in, in care, you know, people from like blossom and, uh, step-by-step Step and all these shows that you and I probably appreciate. Um, so that's cheaper labor and also speaks to a more youthful audience. And so that was kind of like a clever way to, uh, to, to, you know, use less money to reach a different demographic. And I think it's, su- it's such a gritty story too, where I don't want to, I don't want to be that, old guy again that i'm accused of being but like you look at like like if you were to tell the story now of like what's going on between like sony and microsoft and just it's a a very just almost i i don't know what's going on behind the doors but most likely just a very clean business plan and moving forward but back then it was like a small business fighting tooth and nail like uh, the well they're all just segments of the businesses these were just the businesses like all they had then the guy's like getting into walmart yeah. Like that move of opening up a store across the street. To billboards put, in Arkansas. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it's much more a personal story, it, it feels. And, and, and you did a great job telling it from, like, you know, Tom being the centerpiece, I think, right. really, really drives it home. Yeah, absolutely. And those were the elements that I appreciated most was, uh, you know, these ballsy, risky, almost on-the-fly moves that sometimes worked or that often worked, but sometimes didn't. Um, and you know, part of that is just because it was 25 years ago and it was this wild west era of the video game industry. There was no, uh, you know, video games rating council that actually came out of this. There was no industry trade show that came out of this battle. Um, there was Custer's revenge. It was also, you know, a big difference between then and now, aside from just the infrastructure of the industry is, is the costs, you know, 
obviously like spending a million dollars to make a game, that's, that's not nothing. That's a lot of money, but compared to a hundred million dollars now for a game, you know, you could take a lot more risks back then, um, and do these kinds of things. And it also that like what you're just, those examples you're describing are why Sega, uh, was the main perspective in this story because, they had the autonomy to do that. Tom had the autonomy to do that and and also, you know, really deferred to other people who wanted to do kinds of things on the fly. And Nintendo was a much more uh, regimented company that stuck to the plan and, and couldn't really afford to uh, do wild and crazy types of things. So I think that, you know, as readers, as humans, we're going to be drawn to the people who have the most like efficacy to actually try things and and, you know what crazy things they tried what a fun you know what a fun story yeah it makes me wonder when you wrote about nintendo whether if if sega never came through with the genesis would have nintendo waited even another five years till they put out the super nintendo because they seemed uh fine resting on the nes and the famicon for as long as they could um it's a good question i wonder that myself i think they definitely would have waited a couple more years, you know, what urgency do they have? It's not like TurboGrafx was going to force their hand. (laughs) And the other thing I wonder a lot too, aside from ways that Sega could have saved itself, but I wonder, I wonder if not for Sega and specifically the way that Sega uh, did the marketing and portrayed Nintendo as like a little kid's company and uncool, if, if Nintendo would have uh, if Nintendo would still be the super family friendly company they are today, because, you know, at some point Nintendo did sort of lean into that description of them, which was for the most part true, you know, not right, having blood right. in Mortal Kombat mm-hmm. shows that they they were against these types of things. But but I wonder if they would have, uh, you know, had more mature games um, and, and just evolved in a different way if Sega hadn't put them in a corner, because they're still kind of in that corner, though, obviously. Sure. You know, with, I think uh, I think now yeah. what we hated, like when I was when I had Super Nintendo and I got Mortal Kombat, I hated that there was no blood when I was a kid. But as a not that I don't think they give a damn now what I think, but as, as someone my age, I love the fact that they're you know a, a nostalgic. Not, I wouldn't say as family, but like I love that they're leaning heavy into their old characters, and that's what Nintendo is all about. It's not about getting GTA Five on a Switch. It's about Breath of the Wild. Right. It's about a Mario game. Mm-hmm. It's about a Metroid game. Uh, I think that that might it might have backed them in the corner, but it might have wound up being serendipitous for us. As, uh, Definitely for us. I yeah. mean, I'm I still think Nintendo hands down makes the best games. I still buy all their consoles. Uh, you know, I'm a proud owner of the Wii U. Um, <laughs> so even if it hasn't necessarily been, you know, even if there was potentially other ways that they could be a more uh, money making company, I'm personally very happy with the direction that Nintendo right. has stayed, and I think it takes a lot of. Uh, cojones nowadays to basically say like well you know we're not going to compete head-to-head with sony and microsoft that's not what we want to do we want to remain this disney of video games and you know they're 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 maturing in some ways you know doom just came out on the switch that's a game that you know you never would have imagined being released on a nintendo console but for the most you know their version of a first person shooter is splatoon so i think that says (laughs) like where they are you know right so uh now here's the the big question. Uh, I remember when your book got released, the the biggest news every year was that Seth uh, Rogen and Evan Goldberg optioned your book for a, a film. Everyone assumed you were going to be the next Social Network. Uh, yes. is, is there been any progress on that movie on the on the film front? Um, there has, you know. Unfortunately, this is probably the one area where I don't have super satisfying answers. Sure. So, but but I'm happy to you know tell you what I can and uh, and so. 
you know, not surprisingly, like we were just talking about with the Battle of the Sega Stars type thing, you know, I, I took a lot of lessons from what Sega did and uh, knew that myself being a no-name writer, it would be very helpful to have somebody with a name involved. And I felt like the project, you know, unrelated to even my own writing skills or not skills, was was one that would be attractive to people in Hollywood or, uh, you know, and, and, and Seth... Seth Rogen was the first person that came to mind. Uh, well, literally through a Google search, I searched for celebrity gamers and Seth came up. Um, and Seth being somehow the same age as me, even though he looks like he's 20 years older, uh, you know, and also growing up in the pit of that Sega Nintendo battle and having such a big part of his childhood and his friendship with Evan Goldberg, who's his current you know filmmaking partner, be defined by video games. He was like the perfect partner for for console wars i didn't i didn't think there was any chance in the world that i would be able to get his attention and get him involved with this um but fortunately you know people at his company uh really do read the stuff that's submitted to them and they really like this and i ended up being asked to meet with seth and evan and so that was actually all before i even sold the book proposal uh so so it was this uh awesome situation where when we went out to publishers, Seth was already on board to be producing uh, a feature film based on the book and also a documentary uh, based on the book that myself and Jonah, who I mentioned earlier, could direct. Uh, so that was like really surreal, you know. Oh, I, awesome. Wow. And hobnob with celebrities yeah. regularly. Uh, and so to meet with one of the biggest ones, or at least one of the ones I admired most, and sure. to have him be, you know, want to be involved with this and have him, you know, see it as a great movie property, but also just personally to love video games and to love Sega Nintendo. That was awesome. Um, and one thing I always remember was that, that sticks out to me is, uh, when we, when we, so, so, so when we went out to sell the book, the book proposal was sent to 25 different book publishers. And like I said, at that point, Seth and Evan were already on board for the feature film and for the documentary. And also at that point, Scott Rudin, who did produce The Social Network and produced Moneyball. So, right. uh, you know, he, he's, he's a great producer and clearly sure. someone that, whose work I admire, having done two of the books or, that were adapted into awesome movies that, uh, that were inspirations for me. Uh, and so all these great, talented people were involved. And, uh, and still 22 of the 25 book publishers passed on the book because they said video game books don't sell. Um, and so I just thought, I always think that was kind of staggering. Yeah, because, right. You know, forget me for a second. Even if the book was about, you know, like well, Facebook, who would have known a Facebook book would sell? Right, exactly. <laughs> so I figured, so, so, you know, I think that does kind of show what the state of video game books were at the time. Right. And I think that's changed a little bit. I think that console wars has played a small role in that, but certainly that's not the reason why it's changed. I think it's because people just realize these stories are fascinating, that there's access opening up. And, uh, and so anyway, we, we sold the book and, uh, and we've been working with Seth and Evan for the past few years, uh, primarily on the documentary, um, and, you know, and, and we're, we're getting pretty close on that. We should have a, a big update soon, but I'm very, very happy with how that's going. And then, uh, on the feature, that's always been, you know, I'm, a, I'm an executive producer on the project, but that's really more of in their, sure in their hands. Uh, you know, I'm available whenever they need me. And obviously this is like, my baby this is the most important story right. so you know i want it to be the best it can be but part of the reason i wanted to work with them is because i trusted their creative talents so 
So both projects are moving along. Unfortunately, I don't have anything super exciting to say, but but That's I should true. soon, and and I'm very happy with the progress. Quickly, some dream casting. When I was reading this, I pictured Matthew Modine as Tom Kalinske the whole time. And do you have anyone in mind? <laughs> well, you're the first person to ever say that. Why why Matthew Modine? I don't know. For some reason, just because of his mannerisms, mainly a, I don't know, maybe as Papa and Stranger Things. He was kind of that, uh, you know, good executive type. But for some reason, I was picturing him in my mind when I was rereading this. And I'm like, yeah, Matthew Modine wouldn't be bad as, as Tom Kalinske. He's, he's that right age, I think. Um, no, he wouldn't be bad. I, in my, I always kind of had one that people think is a weird choice. I always imagined Aaron Eckert. You know what? That was my second choice. That was my absolute <laughs> second choice. I was going to say Aaron Eckert would be, would be number two. Uh, they kind of look alike as yeah. well. Yeah, they and have it, a good, uh, similar look. Thank you for not smoking. It was just... Exactly. It was awesome, man. Yeah, that was the one that, like, that that kind of Aaron Eckert, like the marketing salesman type guy, but who you like even if he's doing things that maybe are unsavory. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, that was I, not joking. That was my second choice awesome. in mind as for for Kalinsky. But yeah, that's. I just wanted to know if you had any dream casting for for, and that that would be the role. That'd be the it role, I think, in the movie. Yeah, Kalinsky. Um, Squeezer. So we all we all it was a war on. And we had to pick sides, whether or not we had a choice. It all, sometimes it just depended on what our parents came home with uh, <laughs> on Black Friday and you unwrapped at Christmas. Uh, what side were you on uh, in those days? Sure. So I wanted to be on Team Nintendo. My brother and I, we had a, an 8-bit NES and absolutely loved it and begged our parents to get us the Super Nintendo. But my dad told us, that they wouldn't because then Nintendo would just come out with a super duper Nintendo and a super, super <laughs> duper Nintendo. And obviously, you know, he is correct in a, in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, but it also really touches on like the sentiment at the time that parents who were the gatekeepers felt potentially burned by Nintendo, that there was no backward compatibility. Um, and, and I guess for some reason, my dad didn't have the same thoughts about Genesis and Sega having a super duper, say, you know, Sega Genesis. So, so we ended up getting a Sega Genesis, uh, not necessarily by, by choice though, you know, it wasn't like I didn't want a Genesis. Um, and so I was, uh, vocally and proudly on team Sega during those, uh, playground battles. Yeah. We're, we're in the exact same boat. Uh, only I, w I wasn't given. You are, not me. Oh, not you, Mr. Fancy. I have my Super Nintendo that Squeezer wanted and now I got my <laughs> Genesis, but I didn't know any better, so I was quite happy about it. But for me, it gave me the opportunity to play some great Sega games that weren't, you know, available for Nintendo. Did you have anything in particular? Like, you were, those were your games? Yeah, I mean, in the end, it probably worked out really great that, uh, that we were a Sega household because when I was a kid, the stuff that I was most into was sports. Like I love baseball, basketball, football cards. And, and so the, you know, the sports video games were really the ones were almost exclusively the ones that we bought. So NHL 94 is my favorite game of all time, but even the Montana games or the Madden games or the NBA jam was a big deal. And then also like those early EA games. Oh yeah. NBA jam was huge. Blazers and that kind of stuff. So it was, it was probably good that we ended up with the Genesis cause the sports games were better. Uh, and the variety was better on that. Were you an RPG fan? I wasn't No, Were you, uh, uh here uh, we go. Was there a particular action RPG, an isometric <laughs> 3d platformer with no shadows starring an elf and a little black fairy? 
Uh, not not we, in my house. We, uh, you, you, not you in never, any households. You, oh, you never played Landstalker? <laughs> no, I have not. Uh, I never heard of it till he brought it up on the show either. So uh, you're every, not alone. Every about three weeks, we do a show on like Christmas movies, and I'm going to bring up Landstalker somehow. <laughs> but but it, uh, it was Sega's Sega's shot at uh, taking on Zelda. Yeah, it was shot in the dark. Well, Fantasy Star was more their Genesis, or I'm uh, sorry, their. Well, their, that, that was more of an RPG. Yeah. This right. was an action. Invention. This is a hack and slash. Yeah. But uh, you mentioned the sports games, and I was a huge EA fan too. And Madden was my thing, like forever. Yeah. Uh, now I just can't. Kids kill me online, so I don't even bother. But um, is that one of the reasons why you told? I mean, the EA story was huge for Sega, but I love that you added that in there. And that I like, I told someone just the other day the Joe Montana story. And they're like, are you kidding me? I'm like, no, that was essentially the Madden engine, and it actually did better than Madden for a while. Yeah, no, I mean, it wasn't from personal passion that it's in there. I tried to, you know, not, I tried to divorce myself from that. Uh, you know, I think that though, like anything with Michael Jackson or Joe Montana or big celebrities is, is fascinating to learn the behind the scenes stories on. But the, but the EA stuff was really fascinating. Like I, uh, at one point I was thinking about writing my next book about electronic arts. So I did end up interviewing like 50 plus people from EA and, and I, my experience was that almost every single person I interviewed from EA would at some point be like, hey, you know Sega being successful? That was just because of us. Just oh, really? like, and everyone I interviewed from Sega was like, hey, the only reason EA is successful is because of us. So clearly there was like a mutually beneficial relationship there, even if uh, they were both needed each other more than they realized. Well, EA is a persona non grata a lot today. I mean, the Star Wars game has made them... Have you read any of the Battlefront 2 news? I guess Yeah, with the loot crate stuff? Yeah, yeah. People are going nuts over that. I, I haven't played it or, or been... I mean, I, I, I don't keep up as, as well as I should with modern video games. I have the PS4 and we have, I have one game, GTA 5. But uh, yeah, everyone, I, from what I read, and then they're petitioning now for, for Star Wars to revoke their license from EA. And I mean, I'm sure it's just a minority, but... Do, do you think... It's really weird, though, isn't it? Because... Um, you know, I understand the frustration of people uh, not wanting to pay for loot crates or the fact that, you know, some characters are not unlockable. And, and you know, there's things that you can't do unless you pay extra money. That sure. seems like a very valid uh, frustration point to me um, that you can either agree and say, well, they're, you know, the yes, the EA shouldn't do that. Or, you know, it's a corporation. They should try to maximize profits. So, but anyway, I'm sympathetic to that cause. What's weird to me is that EA responded in exactly the way that somebody frustrated would want where they changed the policy and i and so i would hope that like as humans we'd be like okay great right yeah they, they reversed the policy they fixed the problem so okay thanks ea we're you know yeah. but, but the mob like, mentality you know, of modern day is like burn them to the stake yeah the and stake. that's where it's like i understand still being frustrated because who knows ea can go back on this but like it seems more productive to me to like put that in the back of your cap. Like, okay, be, you know, keep an eye on EA and make sure that they don't try to screw us again. Because like it, now that if you bur try to burn them to the ground, the message to the EA is like, well, why did we even change? Like, what was the point? Sure. We should have just stuck with our bad policy. Cause they would have made money. These <laughs> people. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's what I always worry is the people that do have, in my opinion, valid grounds to be upset by not basically like forgiving or saying like, thank you for acknowledging me. 
you are going to make it more difficult on yourself and that kind of cause going forward. Um, I could be wrong with that mindset, but that is usually how I feel in these kinds of situations with corporate. And if it's a good game, it's a good game because you know what they say, the name of the game is the game. Uh, uh, Well, I think people are still bitter over Mass Effect too. I think a lot of that is... That was a line from his book. Al Nielsen off-quoted it for Sega, even though it was from Nintendo. I think Howard Lincoln said that, right? Or no, Peter no. Uh, how, was the one that said it. Yeah, Peter um, Mann. Yeah. It actually, it's interesting. I interviewed somebody uh, on Saturday who had been at TurboGrafx, so you know, not for console wars. This was just <laughs> interested about his stories, and he was telling me how after TurboGrafx, he ended up working at uh, Viacom, where Al, spoiler alert, works at the end of the book. And he was like, I, he's like, I can't, you know, I opened the book and I couldn't believe it. It's Al Nelson. I remember working with him and he always used to say the name of the game is the game. So Al carried that forward. He took it with him in the Viacom? <laughs> What'd you say? He took it with him in the Viacom? He took Peter Main's quote that he, <laughs> you know, re, uh, reclaimed and reappropriated and then brought it with him to Viacom and, and continue to spread the good word because it's so true. It is. It is true. The name of the game is the game. It's, it's wiser words were never spoken. Do you think, no. do you think it's kind of just like growing pains now too, where EA's at? Like it, like everything was kind of, um, like, like par for the course, like between like, uh, you know, you had your Sega and Nintendo and then Sony came in and Microsoft came in and there were always just a couple people competing but now there's so much more to compete with out there and because now you're competing with all these individual developers for uh indie uh, developers indie yeah. developers for like uh mobile games and stuff like that and there's also everyone is finding a way to make money off of this because games are also getting more and more expensive and you're still charging 60 bucks they're charging just as much as you did you know 25 years ago for a game but the development cost is through the roof yeah yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a tough situation. Like, you know, there, there's definitely two valid sides to trying to like maximize making money and not even just from like a port- corporate greed standpoint, but just doing what other people in the industry are doing. You know, it, it has become a norm, microtransactions and that kind of stuff. Um, but I also understand if you pay 60 bucks for a game, you don't want to keep paying more money. Um, that, that seems very reasonable to me. Um, I don't know. I mean, but it's it, like like we kind of hinted at, you know, this is I feel like that frustration is about more than EA or at least that happens more. It's it's a lot of just big companies these days. Sure. Uh, face Cross a lot board, of backlash yeah. over everything they do. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know that that's a bad thing. You know, maybe it's, it's good to hold these companies accountable. Maybe sometimes I don't agree with the language that people uh, use to do so. But uh but they are very big companies and people have expectations. And, you know, if people were not vocal about that, uh, you know, I think that the companies might act even more in a way that fans were not happy with. Oh, yeah. So a question for you. Do you can you tell us the story? Because we we talk about this a lot on the Rad Years. Uh, do you remember when you first got your NES? Yeah, but not uh, not super well. I was, it was either the Christmas of '87 or the Christmas of '88, and uh, or, sorry, it should be the Christmas of '88 or Christmas '89. And, and I was at my grandparents' house in Connecticut, and and I didn't know like what it was. Like I knew, oh, this is like a really good thing. Everyone wants this thing, but I didn't really like, you know, I didn't like understand so much the concept of video games. That like the thing that plays my cartoons can now also play cartoon-looking things that I can control. Um, so so it wasn't like I 
you know, there's a thought bubble above my head of like all the things I'm going to do and play on this Nintendo. I just knew that like, oh, I got this it toy. Um, and then we brought it home and I have some early memories of playing Super Mario Brothers with my brother and my father. Did you end up, was there a Super Mario Brothers 3 show up at any point? Let me think. I don't know. I mean, that, that's probably my second favorite game of all time. Um, what's, but num- I don't know what's number one? We, is your number one? No, what, what's your number what's one? What's your number one? Oh, NHL 94. Oh, yeah, right. He told oh, us that. Oh, yeah, sorry. NHL 94. Yeah, yeah. So, so what happened with Mario Bros. 3, for me, was it was probably the most anticipated game up to that point in time, at least anecdotally. I couldn't ever remember a game that kids were so excited for it partly because it was in the wizard. So we like actually knew, right. It was the first, like it was pre-internet. So it was the first game that was really teased to us. So like, you right. know, you knew what it looked like. Right. Yeah. Right. And so what happened with me, um, this is now ringing a bell was like, you know, the version, the, the part of the reason it was in the wizard, one can presume is because the game was already finished. You know, it wasn't necessarily promotional. It was because it was released in Japan like a year earlier. And my babysitter at the time had lived in Japan previously, and she had like an adapter that like, she played Japanese Nintendo games from um, from the Famicom on the NES. So she had a copy of Mario Brothers Three. So I played it like before everyone else did. No and way! You played it before Fred Savage? Yes. <laughs> well, he didn't play it. His his quiet brother played it. Oh, okay. So a few more Radiers questions for you. Uh, while we have you uh, talk about other than the book. Um, what was your favorite toy line growing up as a kid? Um, G.I. Joe. That was, yeah, I loved G.I. Joe. Did I, you have the SS flag? No, <laughs> I didn't have any of the good, the good stuff. There. I think the only like cool special thing I ever felt like, wow, this is, this is unique was getting Sergeant Slaughter. Oh, uh, me too. To yeah. Learn. With the Slaughter Marauder. Yeah. Yeah, like I had a mail in or just something, something I had to do to like get a special one that you couldn't normally buy in Toys R Us. Mine fell in the snow on the way back from a friend's house uh, down in our alley, and I found him like three months later frozen in a block <laughs> of ice. And like the back half of his hat was broken off, but that was probably one of the most happiest moments. Like such relief. I never occurred in my life than that one moment when I was like five, I six years old. When I found my, my, my brother was more into GI Joe. I had a few, but I remember cause I was big into WWF at the time being obsessed with getting that slaughter figure. And then later on, I read that he left WWF over that because, um, he created that deal on the side with Hasbro and, uh, uh, Vince McMahon wanted his cut. Vince wants everyone's image. Yeah, so uh, that was one of the reasons he originally left, but then came back. And poor Vince made poor Sergeant Slaughter be an Iraqi sympathizer. For during leaving. the Iraq War. Yeah, during the Iraq War for leaving uh, and taking all that Hasbro money, uh, ensuring that there'll never be a G.I. Joe figure again. <laughs> Did uh, uh, Were you, um, let's see, any other, what, what, second to G.I. Joe, what was your your next favorite Uh uh, tr- I, I really love Transformers. Oh, so you're Hasbro straight down the line. I guess so, yeah. What, what was your favorite shitty Kenner action figure line? <laughs> uh, the, uh, I think Chuck Norris. I don't even know. Oh, that was Kenner. That was Kenner. <laughs> that was Chuck Norris figures. He had that a cartoon, like too. And it snapped and like did a kick or something, right? Yeah, or yeah, they, just like the Karate Kid figure. You know what? Those might have, no, those were Kenner. The Karate Kid was Coleco. Okay. Jeez. 
Yeah, I had the Karate Kid ones. They were they were bad, but yeah, Kenner had a lot of shitty action figures, and I love them all. But a lot of re- I always I like as a sports guy, I always really liked the uh, the starting what was it starting uh, lineups. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, starting lineups. Yeah, I had uh, Will Clark and Wally Joyner and a few other guys. Well, you're from you're Connecticut. Were you uh, a Sox fan? No, I grew up in New York. My grandparents just uh, lived there. Uh, I grew up a Yankee fan. Ah, okay. We're we're in uh, uh, down by Philly. We're in Allentown, Pennsylvania. So we are, grew up. Uh, I collected every single uh, Mike Schmidt starting lineup I can get, and then uh, with the '93. Phillies, even so you though Dalton and Dykstra. And oh, yeah, yeah. I modeled my diet after John Crook. Yeah, <laughs> you did. Squeeze has got a very John Crook, Crook athletic look going. <laughs> and what was your what was your hockey team? Uh, the the Islanders or the Rangers? Uh, I I'll admit, like I was just like a front runner with that stuff. So when the Rangers won the Stanley Cup, or you know when they went to the playoffs that year, I was super into it. But I, it wasn't like I was a long time hockey fan uh but that was a fun year yeah i can imagine <laughs> well as flyer fans we never experienced one of those years uh, in our in our lifetime i think there's a little bit of a genetic memory from my dad that i kind of <laughs> remember something that i wasn't alive for but i think that's all well, i'm ever gonna like get uh, i was always really jealous that that nobody on my team like didn't ron hextel score a goal that yeah was he was the first like, goalie to ever score a goal he uh Cross the ice. That was a yeah. and he was, Flyers, I think right? he, yeah, fly, he was with yeah. the Flyers, yep. And yeah, so we, I was always jealous of that. The Flyers were also, the Broad Street Bullies were also featured uh, on the Treehouse of Horror on The Simpsons um, during oh, really? uh, when uh, Ned Flanders was the devil and he was ho- holding court for Homer's soul for the donut. And in, in, in the jury, <laughs> part of the jury was the 1977 <laughs> Philadelphia Flyers. That's funny. So, you know, that's that's about all the, the feathers and the Flyers fans cap we have. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that we we like to discuss uh, on the Rad Years the toy lines. And uh, Kenner is a name that gets brought up a lot, mainly because, you know, they had real Ghostbusters and Batman. But uh, on the side note, they had such sh- like garbage. <laughs> yeah, no, Ghostbusters 2, that was, you know, it's not like I had a big collection of that. I did have... Uh, what was it, the Ecto One or the Ectomobile? Yeah, they had, you know, I, I, the Ecto One, and there was there wasn't much to get with Ghostbusters. Yeah, right, so the, I had all four the four guys, guys so and then that was a, get, that was one I played with a lot, even if I didn't have like a big collection of it. Right. Yeah, that was uh, that was when Kenner started just like repainting and reconfiguring the same four guys over and over and over, uh, and then they yeah. started doing that with Batman and uh, and so on and. That's what that's their they'll be forever be their legacy, right, Squeezer? <laughs> but at least Mattel, you know, hit Kalinsky's legacy there. I mean, you look at like Masters of the Universe. There was a billion and, characters. I, I mean, yeah, but I mean, come on, Castle Grayskull was probably still is one of the top three coolest play sets of all time. I'm more yeah. of a Snake Mountain fan, but oh okay, yeah, but I did like Castle Grayskull. I also had uh, the Evil Horde play Horde Prime play set with the I, little the little snake guy that came out with the glove. Now, see, I was also. You know, like Blake, I was a GI Joe kid, so I had to pick my battles. I didn't. Yeah, but unlike Blake, you had every goddamn fucking toy. I didn't toy. have. You, I, you had everything but the flag. I didn't have. You no, had I every vehicle. He had like he had the turtles, Terradome, and uh, the sewer playset. Oh, that's awesome! I was gonna say Turtles too was a big, another one that 
it was a limited roster in my house, but got a lot of playtime. Oh, yeah, same here. Same here, yeah. I mean, Squeezer didn't have the limited roster. You probably had all the toys. I didn't have... Stop throwing me under <laughs> Spoiled the bus. bastard. I, 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 was the, I didn't have any cousins yeah, for years. Right, Bebop, uh, what you said, you had Bebop and Rocksteady? I didn't have Rocksteady. I just had Bebop. Uh, he was lonely. <laughs> yeah, my, my parents didn't believe in vehicles or villains. They're just like, well, make them fight each other. They just didn't get it. Yeah, it was. It's kind of tough to be like, I'm going to go to the store and spend my 13 bucks I saved up or whatever to buy a villain. Like, I want to bring that in my home. But without right. a villain, it's kind of hard right. to do like fun stories. Yeah, I always, I always had the Joker for when it was Batman. But any other villain, it was tough to like, you know, you know, I want it, but you know, I'd rather have another turtle. Well, I wasn't, I wasn't that spoiled to get my wish of like my having my entire foot clan like because i would get one and then i have to explain to my parents why i need multiple foot soldiers and they're like no you have one i'm like yeah but see there's more than one of these guys and they're like, no and then you played the arcade game and you realized there was about four billion different colored right. and uh they came at you in in swaths of a hundred at a time and if only you could have recreated that in action figures you would have painted them i bet i would have tried yeah mm-hmm. i used to boil them and take them apart and <laughs> Well, G.I. Joe's were easy because you take the screw out, remove the rubber, rubber band, band, and you just mix and match. And Oh, yeah. I remember doing that as I got older. <laughs> yeah. I, I, the only thing I knew about G.I. Joe's is when you tied a firecracker to them, they exploded really well. Pieces went oh. everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I was a sadist. But, uh, yeah, that's about all the time we have with Blake. Uh, he, you were awesome, dude. You answered all our dumb questions. And, you, I mean, if you haven't read Console Wars yet, now that it's been out for almost four years – what the hell is wrong with you? It's uh, I don't know if you want to plug where the easiest way to get is probably Amazon, right? Yeah, Amazon, but it, it should be available anywhere, Barnes & Noble, any book website, uh, libraries. Well, there's a lot of libraries that have it, so yeah. Oh, and I you want to give us a quick uh, quick little taste of that VR book you're, you just, yeah, uh, you just yeah. finished it? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, so I'm, well, I'm still working on it, but the cover did come out, and I think that was partly by my publisher to light a fire under my ass. Um, <laughs> So after Console Wars, like I said, I was thinking about, you know, maybe writing a book about electronic arts. Um, and uh, but, I, you know, it was really hard because Console Wars was such a big, important story in my mind and had such big, you know, colorful characters and really this that confluence of different industries. Like, you know, it was there was tech stuff at the time. They even had a VR headset for some point and entertainment and Hollywood and all that stuff. Right. And so I didn't necessarily think I would find a story like that. Um, but then I tried, uh, one of the dev kit headsets, headsets from Oculus. And I thought that virtual reality, uh, you know, which does have all that cross of all those different intersections and was in my mind and is still going to, you know, change the way we interact and play games. Uh, you know, that really became a huge, uh, fascination for me. And I have spent the past three years uh, researching it and interviewing these folks. And it's a very, very, very different story. Um, But another, you know, awesome one that I feel like I'm just super lucky to get the tell that uh, as I felt with console wars and I even told my my manager and my agent and my wife that, you know, I I obviously have a high opinion of my writing ability, but if not for me, the book would still be good um, because the stories are just good and it's really just up to me not to fuck it up. So I'm doing my best to not fuck up this story and it's, uh, you know, it'll be out in July. It's called The History of the Future and I think that anybody who likes Console Wars will definitely be happy uh, with with reading this one. Do you think 
as far as VR is concerned, and I know this is a stretch, but um, do you think we'll ever get to uh, the place where we were, and maybe not such like a dystopian, but um, uh, the way that uh, the VR is in uh, Ready Player One, um, yeah. where that's basically the oasis? I think... Uh, I think definitely. I mean, I really the answer and what's kind of fascinating about this book is that um, it's just a matter of priorities. You know, nowadays there was a lot of interest in VR these past few years. And by interest, I mean like investment. So money's going into it to make it better and better and better. But these headsets have come out and no one's making money because it's a very small ecosystem. And this, you know, this, this is not surprising. This was always kind of expected, but it's just a matter of how long are these companies, um, like Sony and Facebook and HTC and Microsoft and others going to continue to invest in something that isn't showing a return. And, you know, hopefully the answer is for a while that they'll see that, you know, if they continue to do so, there will be, you know, we can get to a ready player one type situation. Um, you know, I, I'm sure it won't play out exactly like ready player one, but, but the one thing I really loved about ready player one, well, the first thing I loved was that it was super accessible and that my grandma would probably enjoy it. Yes. But the second thing I loved and, uh, and I remember, uh, really like just really taking a step back after reading it and being impressed by it in a way that I didn't necessarily feel while I was going through the pages was that almost every book about the future is, is either dystopian or utopian. And it's usually right. uh, dystopian. There's more conflict there, but I really felt like uh, ready player one was actually kind of just like a good depiction of what the future could look like with this technology. And there's obviously downsides to it um, and upsides to it, but it wasn't saying like, be careful, everyone. This is where we're headed. Like it wasn't right. a cautionary tale. It was like a story just set in a different world where right. this happened to be the case. And I really love that because I think that that's right. probably where we're headed. Wade, um, and I think anyone who's, yeah. Wade, yeah, Wade's, Wade's situ- living situation might have seemed dystopian, but that doesn't mean the right. rest of the world was living that way. And and being in Oasis kind of seemed utopian. Uh, you know, it's it's just the way everyone goes to school and lives their life. So it, it doesn't seem like you know, the worst of things. And if you don't want to do it, you don't have to participate, but you know, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. And uh, with that, that's, that's a good point. Yeah. I mean, like typically in those kinds of books, you would find out like, Oh, the more that Wade gets closer to the end of, you know, the scavenger hunt and the Oasis, like the more he realizes that the Oasis is not what it's cracked up to be. And right. it's actually like the sinister plot, but that's, that's not, not the, the case. case. I mean, no. and, and I think that, the, I think that the, Ernest Klein, who wrote it and who's going to write the forward to my book, uh, did a oh, really great awesome. job. Yeah, that That's was a awesome. huge, huge moment for me getting Ernie to say yes. He's probably uh, on cloud nine with uh, Steven Spielberg uh, yes. directing his his piece of his masterpiece this uh, this summer. I can't wait for that movie. Uh, it's a culmination, I think, of Spielberg directing and um, such a huge piece of pop culture. Uh, and referencing pop culture and, and then like the king of pop culture directing, I think it's going to be a, mm-hmm. uh, a ground, a groundbreaking and a, a huge temple this summer. I can't wait for it. And uh, yeah, me neither. And he's, a, he's an awesome, awesome guy. Ernest. For anyone who read the book and is wondering what the author's like, he is what he's a real sweetheart. He has a DeLorean. He really does. And he, <laughs> it, uh, and he is, I love talking to him. He's, he really is a great guy. That's that's great to hear. So after you buy 
Blake's book and read it, which you'll only need a day or two because it's that quick. Uh, spend the next weekend because you only need a few days, even though it's a little longer, you only need a few days to read Ernest Klein's Ready Player One. Get it, Read it before the movie because it is, it is just a gem of a book. So is yours. Uh, Console Wars by Blake J. Harris. We're talking to the author. We talked to the author. He shared some awesome stories and hopefully you come on again uh, after your next book and you talk about that and talk about who from Hollywood's optioning that for a movie. <laughs> sure thing. All right. Awesome. Well, I look forward to talking to you guys in uh, July, August, you know, over the summer. Awesome. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks, Blake. And thanks, guys. Until uh, next week, I'm RK. I'm Squeezer. Okay, put this back up. Yep.